0: Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. Hello, I'm Scott Postman, I'm joined by Joffrey Sweet and we are your hosts today. And today we are featuring a little C.S. Lewis, and C.S.
1: Lewis uh, is perhaps top-ranked, behind G.K. Chesterton for is exemplifying <laughs> that gentle contempt for education.
0: I think so. But when you say a little C.S. Lewis. This is a lot of C.S. Lewis You're today. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a
1: whole essay. Learning in wartime. And so this sort of came to the, the forefront of our minds uh, because, in fact, we are in wartime. This is being recorded yeah. um, mid-Ukraine-Russia war. And, of course, um, The world is responding and thinking about a whole lot of things, and I know that I myself had a little trouble working last week, yeah, because uh, I wanted to be in the news and I was distracted, and well, so that brought this to mind.
0: Sure. Well, this is the first time, what since World War II, that we have a, an actual, you know, national European conflict. This isn't, you know, not we're not talking about the, you know, conflicts of you know Vietnam and things, but a right. true. Uh, conflict in Europe. And so this is pretty big deal.
1: Yeah. So, uh, learning in wartime, um, was, was delivered as, as a speech, as, as a sermon of sorts. Uh, and it, of course included in, in, in collections of essays by C.S. Lewis, but this was delivered in 1939 and about education, about learning, um, Amidst the lion's roaring, I I suppose.
0: (laughs) Well, and that raises a really big question about what are priorities in our life and how can we go about our life doing things that are are toward human flourishing when so many people are not flourishing, right? right? So. So we're gonna
1: what we're gonna do with this is uh, you know we're gonna take this long form. We are actually gonna read through uh, this entire thing, paragraph by paragraph, and comment. And you know th- this essay sort of accelerates. It becomes a lot denser. There's a whole lot more in the second half of the essay. Uh, so you, you guys will probably find that uh, that the pace sort of changes for us as well. We're just gonna read and comment, read and comment. That's the plan. So you're
0: gonna hear a whole essay by C.S. Lewis and get our comments on top of it. Oh boy, oh
1: boy. <laughs> this is why people come, Scott. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, we actually forgot in our in all our talking and show planning uh, to say who is going to do the
0: reading. <laughs> well, Joffrey is going to do the reading. And you have a reading of this over on your Joffrey the Giant channel, right? That's
1: right, yeah. So I actually did. Uh, I sat down in front of a mic and, and decided to just record this for anyone who wants to you know, treat it like an audio book. There it is. Um, so, yeah, you can, you can go to, to my YouTube channel, Joffrey the Giant. Uh, but also, yeah. you can come here and get it in pieces. And yeah. uh, and here are our, our, our comments. All right, so uh, I'm just going to start, Scott, if you're ready.
0: Yep, please, let's do it.
1: A university is a society for the pursuit of learning. As students, you will be expected to make yourselves, or to start making yourselves, into what the Middle Ages called clerks, into philosophers, scientists, scholars, critics, or historians. And at first sight, this seems to be an odd thing to do during a great war, What is the use of beginning a task which we have so little chance of finishing? Or even if we ourselves should happen not to be interrupted by death or military service, why should we, indeed how can we, continue to take an interest in these placid occupations when the lives of our friends and the liberties of Europe are in the balance? Is it not like fiddling while Rome burns?
0: Man, you, so you said the end of it is so much more dense. And yet in this first paragraph, <laughs> Boom. I'm yeah. trying to decide where do I want to comment? I mean, the, the opening here that a university is a society for the pursuit of learning, that's an entire episode <laughs> by itself. So <laughs> I'm going to leave that alone. But I love that he calls these placid occupations, right? Right. So are these other things when a war is going on, can we consider them placid occupations? Right. I mean, it's
1: it. it these are calm, right? These are you know, if not pacific, then calm. I mean, you know, placid. I think should make you think of a pool of a body of water, and of course, something like a war is a great scattering of pebbles upon the surface of the water. How can you be placid in implacid times? Right. <laughs> um, and you know, so th- that's why he makes this this classical illusion, right? Like the Nero fiddling uh, while Rome burns, and of course the the whole thrust the whole the whole message of the essay is no it's not like fiddling while rome burns but one one sees why that's the first impulse
0: yeah that's that's what it looks like from the from the 30,000 foot zone
1: so uh, second paragraph here now it seems to me that we shall not be able to answer these questions until we have put them by the side of certain other questions which every christian ought to have asked himself in peacetime and this is uh, i'm not going to stop in the middle of most paragraphs but One thing he never comes out and says, but makes clear in this essay, is that the life of the Christian is a life of wartime.
0: It is. There is no such thing as peacetime as people want to think of it.
1: So bringing that thinking into this is really what he's doing. I spoke just now of fiddling while Rome burns, but to a Christian, the true tragedy of Nero must be not that he fiddles while the city was on fire, but that he fiddles on the brink of hell. You must forgive me for the crude monosyllable. (laughs) I know that many wiser and better Christians than I in these days do not like to mention heaven and hell even in a pulpit. I know too that nearly all the references to this subject in the New Testament come from a single source, but then that source is our Lord himself. People will tell you it is St. Paul, but that is untrue. These overwhelming doctrines are dominical. They are not really removable from the teaching of Christ or of his church. If we do not believe them, our presence in this church is great tomfoolery. If we do, we must sometime overcome our spiritual prudery and mention them. The moment we do so, we can see that every Christian who comes to a university must at all times face a question compared with which the questions raised by the war are relatively unimportant. He must ask himself how it is right or even psychologically possible for creatures who are every moment advancing either to heaven or to hell to spend any fraction of the little time allowed them in this world on such comparative trivialities as literature or art, mathematics or biology. If human culture can stand up to that, it can stand up to anything. To admit that we can retain our interest in learning under the shadow of these eternal issues, but not under the shadow of a European war, would be to admit that our ears are closed to the voice of reason and very wide open to the voice of our nerves and our mass emotions. It's
0: a powerful paragraph. And and his point here is that humanity is on the brink of hell every single day, right? Right. But we don't think a lot about that um, often. You know, we don't think about the person who goes to college during peacetime when his neighbor doesn't have Christ. Right. And, and we, we might even agree that a person who gave up all other human activity until every single person on earth came to Christ would be some sort of, you know, monomaniac. Right. And and that's his point. Maybe our perspective, you know, to think that, wow, this is some special time that might hinder us um, when actually no, this is the same time all the time.
1: Yeah. So I'm really what he's doing here and he's to unpack a lot of this, but really what he's doing here is calling us to perspective and, mm-hmm. And a perspective in in a particular way, a perspective that I think a lot of Christians would be tempted uh, to consider sort of Eastern, Mm. but it's not, or Gnostic or Mystic, but it's not. No, It affirms life in the Incarnation, and that is to hold life lightly. Absolutely. You know, to, to consider that, to consider the, the, the lightness of being that, you know, this, this is passing and it's okay if it goes away. And, you know, we're, we're lost to do that, not just with ourselves, but with other things. Like I worked, I worked with a lot of minority languages uh, for a time. And one of the great tragedies of that was that, and something that a lot of people in the field could not accept was the passing of a language. Mm. And it is tragic, but it's also the way of the world languages die and languages come to new life like there are there are you know new things developed that will one day be languages but we get so caught up on on holding tightly onto the things that have been or the things that are and we don't we ultimately we don't trust god to give meaning to everything
0: right and and it we're not looking at it with the eternal consequences in view or the, the eternal perspective in view and and i think that's really what he's bringing to light here so yeah that's a great point
1: this indeed is the case with most of us, he says. Certainly with me. For that reason, I think it important to try to see the present calamity in a true perspective. It is. The war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. You know, <laughs> we... Uh, we did read this before. Before we're, we're basically just talking about what the next paragraph is going right. to say. <laughs> um, okay, well, continuing. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. If men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until they were secure, the search would never have begun. We are mistaken when we compare war with normal life. Life has never been normal. Even those periods which we think most tranquil, like the 19th century, turn out on closer inspection to be full of cries, alarms, difficulties, emergencies. Plausible reasons have never been lacking for putting off all merely cultural activities until some imminent danger has been averted or some crying injustice put right. But humanity long ago chose to neglect those plausible reasons. They wanted knowledge and beauty now and would not wait for the suitable moment that never comes. Periclean Athens leaves us not only the Parthenon, but significantly the funeral oration. The insects have chosen a different line. They have sought first the material welfare and security of the hive, and presumably they have their reward. Men are different. They propound mathematical theorems in beleaguered cities, conduct metaphysical arguments in condemned cells, make jokes on scaffolds, discuss the latest new poem while advancing to the walls of Quebec, and comb their hair at Thermopylae. This is not panache. It is our nature. Or I might say, our nature is panache.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I I love that that he brings up these examples here at the end, you know, when when I think of Thermopylae and Leonidas uh, and his 300. And, you know, the Greeks literally go out to war, uh, polish up their armor, comb their hair, make sure they look glorious as they go out to die glorious, you know. And and so, yeah, I, I think, you know, to be really honest, there's not a whole lot to add because it's almost like he expounds on what we're saying already, um, yeah. you know, gets ahead of us here. But But in all times, there are... Difficulties, and there are great achievements uh, by human, you know, human right. beings.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting though. There is a line in, in this paragraph uh, that made me think of what my social media has been like. Right? He says that you know, in closer examination, even the more peaceful periods are full of cries, alarms, difficulties, emergencies. And so now, you know, all these alarms being raised, and oh, World War Three, and 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 you know, who who knows what grief maybe brought upon the world yet um but you know g- g- this is why this essay is, is is so helpful but it also reminds me that uh, of of a so matthew arnold is brought up in this essay okay and we we and di- kind of disparagingly and he came up in a recent hicks mm-hmm. uh, you know a recent uh, ep- uh podcast episode we did about about hicks a book um and so i actually thought i would read the end of Matthew Arnold's most famous poem, mm-hmm. Dover Beach, uh, because of, of the line that Lewis uses. Lewis uses of cries, alarms. So you're not just getting
0: emergencies. you're not just getting the essay. You're actually going to get some poetry too. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yes. So the very end of Dover Beach from Matthew Arnold. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain, and we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. So those are lines that, especially as a teenager, I loved quite a bit, even recognizing that it's not... A particularly Christian, Christian perspective. Yeah. It's very, very, very pagan or existential depending on what you want to emphasize. But, um, but you know, that's sort of, sort of Lewis's point. You could look at the world that way. Mm-hmm. Either you have hope or you don't. Right. Do you have hope when the only, uh, the only hum- humanitarian crisis is Belgians slaughtering Africans in the Congo, you know, if you were around 150 years ago, or is it only when, oh, uh, the last time the Crimea, Crimea right. was, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and, and so uh, all the, these alarms are always around. Do yep. you hope in Jesus or not? Do you want to have good things for humanity or not? Yep. Uh, then you're going to have to talk about the latest new poem while you're marching on the walls of Quebec.
0: That's that's how it's always going to be. Well, and I just, I want to add to this um, because... I've seen some memes and and people posting things, you know, along the lines of, "Man, we just got over COVID. You know, this whole thing's ending, right. and now World War III is know happening." You know, that that <laughs> yeah. sort of attitude. Um, but I think that's Lewis's point here. You know, while we seem to be surprised by these things, as if the world had ever been in a situation where there wasn't something going on. Right. Right.
1: By the way, this this, this it, it is irrelevant where on the spectrum of conspiracy theories, you lie,
0: yeah. <laughs> right?
1: Because, you know, if, whether nothing is really conspiracy and it's all just sort of powers and principalities bumping into each other at night, <laughs> or <laughs> if, if everything has been plotted by a secret seven, it doesn't matter. Right. God's in charge, yep. right? And if you're going to make good things, if you're going to raise your family, if your kids are going to be educated, then that's the thing that has to be done.
0: Right. It it does have to be done. And, and it comes down to this idea where, you know, you, you said just a moment ago, you either believe or you don't. And this is that, this is that situation where belief actually takes on something more than just mental assent, mm. right? That we're actually believing in a sense that we are trusting enough to go on and get educated, go on and create art, go on and raise a family and not, you know, let's not have kids, you know, because global warming is right. coming, that kind of thing. This, this attitude of, you know, there is a future because there is a God.
1: Amen. Let's continue with Lewis. But since we are fallen creatures, the fact that this is now our nature would not by itself prove that it is rational or right. We have to inquire whether there is really any legitimate place for the activities of the scholar in a world such as this. That is, we have always to answer the question, how can you be so frivolous and selfish as to think about anything but the salvation of human souls? And we have at the moment to answer the additional question, how can you be so frivolous and selfish as to think of anything but the war? Now, part of our answer will be the same for both questions. The one implies that our life can and ought to become exclusively and explicitly religious. The other, that it can and ought to become exclusively national. I believe that our whole life can and indeed must become religious in a sense to be explained later. But if it is meant that all our activities are to be of the kind that can be recognized as sacred, and ties are to be of the kind that can be recognized as sacred and opposed to secular, then I would give you a single reply to both my imaginary assailants. I would say, whether it ought to happen or not, the thing you are recommending is not going to happen. Before I became a Christian, I do not think I fully realized that one's life after conversion would inevitably consist in doing most of the same things one had been doing before. One hopes in a new spirit, but still the same things, and then here's the part where he, he he's then going to talk about the stuff that establishes his ethos for saying what he's about to say. So let's let's stop here for some comment.
0: Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> Were you about to talk about the stuff to come?
0: Yeah, it, but but it's but it's great because what what he points out here this this idea that the normal life. As a Christian, you know when people talk about you know being a Christian. Several years ago, there was a book written. um, Is it David Platt? I think that wrote the book Mm. about basically you know being extraordinary as a Christian and and all of these things. And I think there was somebody else who wrote a book like How to Be a Christian and Be Ordinary. You know this this argument about the fact you know both in the Reformed world, but the argument about what does the Christian life actually look like. And I think what Lewis brings up here is the fact. That we continue just to be human beings doing human things, but with the hope of Christ, with the peace of Christ, with the uh, understanding that we are justified and we actually have a purpose for all the things we're doing now.
1: Right. And he he even brings up the fact that extravagance is part of what makes us human. Even without Christ, men want something beyond Scrabble survival.
0: They, they, they want to write poems on the top of, you know, the, the skyscrapers and those things. Absolutely.
1: All right. So, uh, Lewis says, um, one hopes these things are done in a new spirit, but they're still the same things before I went to the last war, I certainly expected that my life in the trenches would in some mysterious sense be all war. In fact, I found that the nearer you got to the front line, the less everyone spoke and thought of the allied cause and the progress of the campaign. And I am pleased to find that Tolstoy in The Greatest War Book Ever Written records the same thing, and so in its own way does the Iliad. Ever, yeah. the, ever the professor. <laughs> yes, <laughs> really is. Them, which is great. I mean, <laughs> connection, connection, <laughs> connect the dots. Neither conversion nor enlistment in the army is really going to obliterate our human life. Christians and soldiers are still men. The infidels' idea of a religious life and the civilians' idea of active service are fantastic. They are. If you attempted in either case to suspend your whole intellectual and aesthetic activity, you would only succeed in substituting a worse cultural life for a better. You are not in fact going to read nothing, either in the church or in the line. If you don't read good books, you will read bad ones. If you don't go on thinking rationally, you will think irrationally. If you reject aesthetic satisfactions, you will fall into sensual satisfactions. There is therefore this analogy between the claims of our religion and the claims of the war. Neither of them, for most of us, will simply cancel or remove from the slate the merely human life which we were leading before we entered them. But they will operate in this way for different reasons. The war will fail to absorb our whole attention because it is a finite object and therefore intrinsically unfitted to support the whole attention of the human soul. In order to avoid misunderstanding, I must here make a few distinctions. And we'll stop there.
0: Well, first off, from my own personal military experience, um, and and I've never been in a war I've been in during uh, Desert Shield and the Desert Storm is when when I served. And it's so, <laughs> the first time I ever read this, it, it resonated so much because while we worked on, I worked on B-52s with a nuclear commitment. And so we had a lot of, you know, secret things and all the things we had to go through, steps we had to go through to work on anything. And yet while we were on the truck doing all this top secret, all this stuff that we we're doing, you know, people are reading books, they're telling jokes, they're, you know, yeah. and, and they're either being good or they're being bad, but they're being human all the time, no matter what, and this just resonated because you get this idea that life changes in some dramatic way when these big events happen, but but it doesn't. No,
1: yeah, that's right. You know, and it's so so interesting how he says that a war is too small a thing to it, occupy. It is, us. yeah, that, it is. That's just absolutely mind blowing. <laughs> but I think that's really fitting to how I see a lot of people responding to, sure. to this crisis, particularly when they are skeptical. And there's good reason to be skeptical. And of course, propaganda is coming out from both sides. Uh, but, but when they are, they are skeptical of, hey, we just had a pandemic and now they're telling us there's a war. Right. You yeah, know, like, you know, wait, what maybe, gives.
0: But maybe, you, <laughs> maybe we really didn't go to the moon. <laughs> maybe maybe, maybe are, the earth is flat.
1: <laughs> but, you know, if, if you are called to, to fight tyranny, to bring blessing to the world, then surely one hopes your humanity, your mind is big enough. To encompass all of that, right that's I think that's, I think that's one of the reasons the New Testament speaks of Antichrists yeah but regardless of whether you want to attach that word to it or not, you've already been busy right right I mean the pandemic and and the the, the tyranny that emerged from that is just the latest thing you've been fighting. one hopes, Hopefully you've been fighting abortion. Hopefully you've been fighting government schools. Hopefully you've been fighting this and that example of corruption, tyranny, and sin in the world. This is just one more to, to fight or not, right? It may right. not be your fight, but like w- what's so big about all of this. This is life.
0: This is life. It's just a different chapter of the same thing. Same book, say, you know, d- different chapter, different, you know, a different circumstance, but we're always in this war.
1: Mm. So Lewis continues, I believe our cause to be, as human causes go, very righteous, and I therefore believe it to be a duty to participate in this war. And, oh, okay, I love these, ne- <laughs> these next couple of lines. Every duty is a religious duty, mm-hmm. and our obligation to perform every duty is therefore absolute Thus, we may have a duty to rescue a drowning man, and perhaps, if we live on a dangerous coast, to learn life-saving so as to be ready for any drowning man when he turns up. It may be our duty to lose our own lives in saving him, but if anyone devoted himself to life-saving in the sense of giving it his total attention, so that he thought and spoke of nothing else and demanded the cessation of all other human activities until everyone had learned to swim, he would be a monomaniac like global warming people. Right. (laughs) The rescue of drowning men is then a duty worth dying for, but not worth living for. It seems to me that all political duties among which I include military duties are of this kind. A man may have to die for our country, but no man must in any exclusive sense live for his country. He who surrenders himself without reservation to the temporal claims of a nation or a party or a class is rendering to Caesar that which of all things most emphatically belongs to God himself. It is for, for a very different reason that religion cannot occupy the whole of life in the sense of excluding all our natural activities for, of course, in some sense it must occupy the whole of life. Well, he's about to get into religion. So I'll stop here because he's been talking a little bit more about political duty.
0: Well, yeah, well, this, this idea of being a monomaniac uh, comes to mind. I mean, this is the central point here in this paragraph that nobody lives that way um, except for a few people yeah. who tend to live that way, and, and they is, are always this is
1: the best time. By the way, it was 15 years ago. There was a very popular meme. Do you remember? Um, keep, keep calm and carry on. It was all over Pinterest. Okay, right? keep calm and, and blah blah whatever. Whatever. I
0: think I have a shirt that I keep calm and grow a beard or yeah, something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah Now is the time That's for that infinite, meme. Right? <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's just the world. Right. This is the world that we live in. But we're not monomaniacs about other things. But when some big thing comes on the news, and I feel like it's a good time to maybe plug this idea that for Christians, we need to begin our, if this makes sense, we need to get our news from the Bible, from the scriptures, rather than Mm. from CNN or Fox News or or these other places. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Well, what I mean by that is when we look at the perspective of the world and the things going on, we know we have to to recognize, and we all know it, I think in inherently we talk about it, that the things coming out have an agenda. Every single bit of it has an agenda to persuade the way we view the world and the way we think about things. And it's no different now than when I was a little kid and Jimmy Carter's, you know, gas, you know, crisis was happening and I was sitting in the back of the car waiting in line for, you know, 20 years to, you know, to fill up the tank of gas. You know, as a kid, Man, it seems like forever. <laughs> um, but I mean, there's always something going yes. on this way. And and when we look at the scriptures and we realize if there is a conspiracy, um, we know that it has to do with the kingdom of Christ, right? We know that it has to do with with the enemies of the kingdom of Christ. And so there isn't anything even now. Uh, certainly it may inform the way we pray, you know, let's mm-hmm. pray for the folks in in um, Ukraine and in, in Russia that, you know, that there's a lot of victims in Russia just as much as there are in Ukraine. Um, that's a different topic. But but the idea that whatever the crisis is has just changed to a different thing yeah, doesn't mean that we're living any different. So we want to get our news from the, the yeah. Bible.
1: Well, you, you saying and get, we need to get our news from the Bible uh, made me think of a verse that I actually, I've actually been quite proud of myself for for not trot- trotting out at all, or hardly at all during these last couple of years, <laughs> which is in Isaiah chapter eight. So in the middle of this, because you know, my, this people has refused this and that, the king of Assyria is coming, terrible judgment, be broken, you peoples be shattered, et cetera, yep. right? Okay. And then, for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying... Mm-hmm. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's fantastic. What a great, <laughs> what a great verse in, the, in this time. And, and so apropos to this particular essay. That, um, you know, that we have a perspective as Christians, a worldview by which to view all of these events. And I think that's exactly what Lewis is saying here, right? Right. This is, we don't stop doing human activity because something else now has come down the pike to, you know, to to deal with.
1: Right. Well, so, you know, Lewis has just been talking about how, you know, treating some sort of, uh, you know, basically living your entire life exclusively um, toward some temporal claim gives to Caesar what ought to belong to God, which is your, your very self.
0: Yeah. And and before you move on, I, I thought of something I was going to say and got sidetracked by mm. my own comments <laughs> <laughs> here. But we are worshiping creatures, right? So we are worshiping people. So no matter what's coming down, no matter what's coming to us, you know, yeah. then we have to keep that perspective of we are worshiping God. We live our life out of worship, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. And if we keep that perspective, then all of this doesn't really matter. Right.
1: Okay, well, it is for a very different reason that religion cannot occupy the whole of life in the sense of excluding all our natural activities, for, of course, in some sense, it must occupy the whole of life. There is no question of a compromise between the claims of God and the claims of culture or politics or anything else. God's claim is infinite and inexorable. By the way, I need to stop here to point out that I love the word inexorable, (laughs) and it's because of C.S. Lewis that I love the word inexorable. He must have loved this word himself. Say more. Well, it's, um, it's the description of Tash. Oh, in,
0: tash, in the last Tash, the battle? inexorable. Oh, boy, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, dang! <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> Stay good. out of Tash's <laughs> way.
1: Anyway, uh, <laughs> but, but it's actually the true God's claim that is infinite and inexorable. You can refuse it or you can begin to try to grant it. There is no middle way. That's another ironic thing. Yep. He's Anglican and he's using the phrase, he's saying there is no middle way. Anyway, we don't allow ourselves to get distracted. We continue (laughs) reading. Yet, in spite of this, it is clear that Christianity does not exclude any of the ordinary human activities. St. Paul tells people to get on with their jobs. He even assumes that Christians may go to dinner parties, and what is more, dinner parties given by pagans. Our Lord attends a wedding and provides miraculous wine. Under the aegis of his church and in the most Christian ages, learning and the arts flourish. The solution to this paradox is, of course, well known to you. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. All our merely natural activities will be accepted if they are offered to God, even the humblest, and all of them, even the noblest, will be sinful if they are not.
0: I feel like just one, this paragraph or this line in this paragraph quoting from 1 Corinthians really is the summary of the entire mm. essay, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you're going to do, do it to the glory of God if it's in war or if it's what you perceive to be peace at that time.
1: Right. But, you know, I mean, the, the perspective that he brings um, is necessary to illuminate this verse because yeah. it would be possible to read this to, to mean I must stand in front of the abortion clinic Every waking mm. moment, yeah. and every moment I sleep is a moment God will have to forgive me for.
0: Yeah, right. and I know I keep beating this drum, but that, that's the monomaniac, right? right. And that's, that's what we don't want to be. One of the ways in which we are able to be worshiping creatures to fight these battles is to live the normal life of a human being yes. under Christ.
1: Well, let's see, where are we? Uh, Christianity does not simply replace our natural life and substitute a new one. It is rather a new organization, which exploits to its own supernatural ends, these natural materials. Since this is a f- an informal podcast, y'all, I'm going to stop for a moment and say, why are you laughing? At that?
0: <laughs> well, I feel like every time we expound on something, like he just follows, oh, like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and then he just, <laughs> you know, he says the things that we're saying. So it's, it's almost like, let's just read the, the, <laughs> the, the essay and shut up.
1: <laughs> uh, no doubt. In a given situation, it demands the surrender of some, or, of all, are merely human pursuits. It is better to be saved with one eye than having two to be cast into Gehenna. But it does this in a sense per accidens, because in those special circumstances it has ceased to be possible to practice this or that activity to the glory of God. There is no essential quarrel between the spiritual life and human activities as such. Thus, the omnipresence of obedience to God in a Christian's life is in a way analogous to the omnipresence of God in space— God does not fill space as a body fills it, in the sense that parts of Him are in different parts of space, excluding other objects from them. Yet He is everywhere, totally present at every point of space, according to good theologians. Good theologians.
0: Well, I think, and one one of the things I love because Lewis is very uh, uh, Platonic in the in the in terms of his his thinking, but he really defies Gnosticism here uh-huh. uh, in in bringing this part out that all of our life is. Uh, you know, the God is in all parts of this. And then
1: connecting that to obedience is, is the part that, you
0: know, yep. touches the ground for us
1: as, you know, as we're reading this essay for the purposes that the essay was, was written. It, it, in a sense, it makes our obedience in, in, more relaxed. Sure. Right. Because it's not the one thing that we must obey taking up all of this space. Well, right. I, it yeah. can all it can exist together. This is part of what we've been talking about with yes,
0: perspective. It is perspective, and and I'm going to draw from just personal experience. And and we've talked before on this or the consortium podcast. You know, my background coming from a particular tradition where giving the gospel to somebody was the only duty, and all parts of life um, focused around that. Right. So there there were certain days, several days a week, and times that were set aside for that. And then everywhere you went. Um, it was almost like you know you didn 't go out to dinner with your family, you went out to dinner so that you could hand out as many gospel tracts as you could get out into people 's hands. Right. All of life became oriented, and there 's a sort of distortion now while we should be giving the gospel to people, there is a distortion of the human life as God meant it and the way he intended for the gospel the gospel to actually be you know uh, the, the great commission to be carried out
1: right and you know earlier in the essay he he talked about how yeah, it creates if you if you focus it all down to this to this one thing Uh, to this one conflict, this one worthy fight, if your whole life is just about that and you're demanding that the lives of others be all about that thing, then you are no longer fighting to preserve a good.
0: Right. You're not. You've distorted it. Yep. Very good. We
1: are now in a position to answer the view that human culture is an inexcusable frivolity on the part of creatures loaded with such awful responsibilities as we. I reject at once an idea which lingers in the mind of some modern people that cultural activities are in their own right spiritual and meritorious. as though scholars and poets were intrinsically more pleasing to God than scavengers and bootblacks, I think it was Matthew Arnold who first used the English word "spiritual" in the sense of the German "heislich," and so inaugurated this most dangerous and most anti-Christian error. Let us clear it forever from our minds. The work of a Beethoven and the work of a charwoman become spiritual on precisely the same condition—that of being offered to God, of being done humbly as to the Lord. This does not, of course, mean that it is for anyone a mere toss-up, whether he should sweep rooms or compose symphonies. A mole must dig to the glory of God, and a cock must crow. We are members of one body, but differentiated members, each with his own vocation. A man's upbringing, his talents, his circumstances are usually a tolerable index of his vocation. If our parents have sent us to Oxford, if our country allows us to remain there, this is prima facie evidence that the life which we, at any rate, can best lead to the glory of God at present— is the learned, learned life.
0: Wonderful. Well, I I love there is this Protestant uh vocational perspective here that he uh-huh. brings out that I think is so important that all of life is, you know, doing life as you have been called. And 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 to to qualify, what do we mean by called? A lot of people focus on this, you know, what is my calling in life? And and it's It's not, I don't want to diminish the idea that we shouldn't be seeking the Lord and what we should be doing. But, you know, if you end up in like all the circumstances pointed you and you're in Oxford to get an education, that's God's will for your life. Right. All right. Um, And so we've got, what, two paragraphs left to go? Two, or no. two paragraphs. Oh no! Sorry, sorry. I thought you. <laughs> no. we're, this
1: is. We have uh, so many pages left. <laughs> this is you all hearing uh, the professionalism of our signals. We had agreed beforehand that if we had a bunch of amazing things to say, uh, and we were only at a certain point, uh, we would uh, go ahead and split it Make off it, into part two.
0: Yeah, part two. I see your two, the two <laughs> fingers.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> part two. Pointing at the uh, clock.
1: So anyway, y'all, uh, t- thank you for tuning into this bit, and part two is coming right up. God bless.